It's really good to be together with every single one of you, whether this is your first time with us in the Journey community or if you're, uh, whether you're a long-termer. We're really honored by your presence as we worship the God of the universe and as we seek to connect with him at whatever your level of spiritual interest. And this week I've been thinking about this uh, attribute of God, one of the things that absolutely amazes me about our God, and it's this reality that he meets us in the place that we're at. Ever think about that? He meets us in the place that we are at. He comes down, he condescends himself to our level, to our place, in the midst of our need, and he meets us there. Whoa. Like, think about that. The God of the universe comes down and meets us in the place where we are at. And then an amazing thing happens. He loves us too much to leave us in that place where we're at. He says, come on. Come on. I have good and I have great things that I've scripted for you since before the beginning of time. Come on. Let's go. What a God he is. Uh, Those of you who were around here last spring and summer, you know that I had the privilege of uh, taking about a four or so month research and enrichment leave, we called it. It was our expression of a sabbatical after about a seven or eight year run of uh, what we considered full throttle ministry, especially in the launch phase of Journey and then even a few years before we started Journey. And our leadership teams around here decided that for the long term health of Journey, as well as my health, our family's long-term health, that we would actually implement this research and enrichment leave model. It wouldn't just be something for me. We'd actually build it into the DNA of our whole ministry staff team around here. We love the health that it brings to the journey organizationally, uh, individual ministry staff, the health it infuses to their families, and so. And so we're going to continue that model going forward. And the person who is next in line for a research and enrichment leave, who has been pouring in and pouring out at a very high level since before Journey launched, is our pastor of worship and creative arts, Brandon Edwards. And so uh, just after Easter through about the end of July, it'll be about 90 or so days, Brandon will be on one of those research and enrichment leaves for the purpose of our health as a church, his family's rest, actually for his learning as well in preparation for Journey's next season of growth and ministry. He'll be in some different places around the country meeting with leaders and organizations uh, for a piece of his leave. Uh, Derek Johnson, who is with the Walt Disney organization, he was here a few months ago. Brandon will be meeting with him and uh, other worship leaders and pastors who we hold in high regard as well. And just so we're real clear, uh, this research and enrichment leave deal, it isn't a reaction to anything untoward in Brandon's conduct or ministry. Rather, this is just a very proactive decision for health, for his spiritual health, his emotional health, for our organizational health as a church, and for his family health even. And I'd invite, if you have any questions whatsoever about that, uh, the whys, the model, and so forth, uh, I'll be in Guest Central after today's experience. Really, really gladly uh, speak to those. And please, uh, over the next few weeks, be wishing Brandon well and uh, let him know you're excited for him to learn and grow and rest and so. And then also, uh, join me in looking forward to worshiping under the leadership of some of our other very, very gifted worship leaders throughout the spring and summer. It'll be a fantastic time. Just a little heads up about next weekend, I'll be talking on the subject of homosexuality next weekend, answering the very, 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 very sticky question that we Christians hope and pray no one asks us, why does Christianity so condemn homosexuality when it would appear that God made homosexuals and loves all people just the same? That'll be quite a Palm Sunday, won't it? And uh, we're going to forego the palm fronds and so, and we're just going to talk about that. 
So uh, would you pray for me this week, please? I would greatly, seriously, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, on a praiseworthy note, our house closed. We are no longer homeowners. Done. Thanks be uh, to God. Now, uh, if you'd stand to your feet, please. Uh, I understand that Townley led you in some dance moves. Stand to your feet uh, last weekend. So come on, stand up. It's my turn. Can't be outdone by the student pastor. And so are you limber and are you loose? Here we go. We got dance moves. Uh, Just kidding. I ain't ever going to teach you dance moves. I hate dancing. I hate it. I'd rather clean bathrooms than dance. But as long as you're standing up, why don't you hang out with the people around you, love up on the folks and... Thankfully, I married Dana, who is a woman who also hates dancing, so we're uh, two peas in a pod, uh, the no dancing pod, uh, that is. And because we're talking about pain and suffering today, I went ahead and I wrote a two-hour message so that you could all experience pain and suffering firsthand uh, today, not really, though we are going to tackle this sticky question that we Christians hope no one will ask, how could a good God allow so much evil, pain, and suffering? How could a good God allow so much evil, pain, and suffering? Or, we tag on, does he simply not care? Does he simply not care? Many thanks to a guy named Mark Middleberg, along with some others, for the resources in helping me study and prep for this series and uh, this message. And countless millions of people have asked that question, or some form of that question, how in the world could a good God allow so much evil, pain, and suffering, or does he simply not care, haven't they? And how many of us sitting here today have asked that same question? All the way from mildly irritating events, like being stung by a bee, to truly catastrophic events that devastate and destroy lives, that question is front and center. As a matter of fact, research has revealed that this question is generally considered to be the number one issue causing people to doubt or disbelieve in the existence of God. Probably has been for the past couple thousand years. Which means that our response, church, is of vital importance for the spiritual progress of the people who are coming to us, asking us their stickiest questions about our faith And God, and I just have to say that as part of our answer to this question, we have to consider that very often people who are experiencing deep pain, deep suffering, deep loss, they will often utter words that sound an awful lot like questions, when in reality, they're not really questions at all. For example, our daughter Bailey, for a few months after she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, uh, she was six, this was a couple of years ago now, she would very often ask Dana and I, why in the world did I get diabetes? Why in the world did I get diabetes? Now that was the question she was asking, but in all honesty, she wasn't really looking for an explanation of the physical reasons why she got diabetes. That isn't what she really wanted. Instead, she was crying out, wasn't she, for help and love and comfort as she began to process this new reality that she was living in, which back then, before she got this really cool insulin pump that delivers her insulin, sort of an external pancreas uh, of sorts, her diabetes reality in the earliest days was five to seven shots every single day right in her butt. And that was brutal. It was brutal on her. It was brutal on us. We would very often have to hold her down. 
so that we could stick that needle into her butt. It was very, very unpleasant. And she would ask, why, why me? Why did I get diabetes? And it's like that with a whole bunch of people, isn't it? Maybe you, who are in the midst of great pain and who almost reflexively raise the question, why? And here's what we have to keep in mind. When people in our lives are experiencing pain, they're very likely not asking for an explanation as much as they're in need of empathy and concern and tangible expressions of love. Bailey just needed us to scoop her up and hold her and say, it's okay, we're gonna walk with you through this. We're in this with you. You're not alone. We love you. And their mouths very often might say the words, where was God? Where is God? Does God even give a rip? But my inclination is that the very deeper question is, you, you say you know God. And so would you please get about showing me his kind of love, his kind of care? James 2, 15 and 16 really gets at this. Suppose you see your brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? What good does that do? And then 1 John 3, 18 and 19 continues that same thrust. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Let's walk this out, church. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. See, when people are in the throes of trauma, shock, and pain as something terrible is unfolding in their life, it's my view that we are really wise to resist the urge to try to answer questions or offer rationale for why we think God allows these sorts of things. And you can put those questions off by saying something like, you know, that's a great question. I'd be really glad and happy to talk with you about those things sometime, but I'll bet you that a deep philosophical discussion about pain and suffering and its source isn't what you really need right now. Could we talk about that a little later? Because right now, my primary concern is how I help you navigate the next few minutes, the next few hours, the next few days, the next few months, because why? I really want to help you get through this. I really want to help you persevere in the midst of this awful tragedy. And in order for us to have that later, more philosophical conversation, we have to have thought these matters through. And so let me lay them out this way. There are at least three concepts or three teachings in the Bible that really sort of feel incongruent to us. The first is that God is good. That often feels incongruent to us, which is to say that he's absolutely pure, that he hates evil, that he has to face and deal with all the things that are in rebellion to him. That feels incongruent to us sometimes. The second seemingly incongruent concept about God from the Bible is that he's great, isn't it? which is to say that he can conquer anything that challenges him because very often it doesn't feel like he does, right? The third seemingly incongruent concept about God from the Bible is that evil is real, which is to say that there are very real things out there that are in rebellion to God and that are in this very moment challenging him. And after all, it feels incongruent because, well, something challenging God, why doesn't he just get in its face and push it back? And those are all seeming incongruencies in our understanding of God because after all, he's God, right? He certainly would know all about this evil thing. And if he's really good, then he would condemn all evil and he would want to do something about it. And if God was truly great, meaning that he was all powerful, then he would certainly follow through and do something, something that goodness demands, which is like destroy, stomp out all the evil. And this problem exists because we believe all those things about God, don't we? 
We believe that he's good. We believe that he's great. And in the face of God being good and great, evil still exists, and it exists on an enormously grand scale. And so, Christians, what in the world are we to do with that? And there are some real common approaches. One of them is to deny God's existence. You just say, well, evil exists, and so God doesn't. And sometimes when people do that, they also deny the reality of evil. They say, no, evil doesn't exist. I don't know how they explain all the bad things that go on in the world, but they dismiss evil. The other thing that some people do is they try to make evil actually a part of God's nature and character. They sort of deify this concept of evil. Some other people, they try to diminish God's power, and they say, well, he's not all powerful. Some other people, they try to diminish God's goodness, like, well, he's sort of good, but not really good. But none of those approaches really get to the heart of the matter, do they? Instead, uh, I and a whole bunch of other people who are way wiser and way smarter than me suggest that instead of trying to work all of this down so that we can wrap it up all neat and tidy, tie a bow around it, instead, they suggest, I suggest, that we live, rather, in a constant state of tension, which isn't always very comfortable, is it? You might write that word down, tension, and actually acknowledge, yes, there is a God, yes, he is good, yes, he is great, and, and it's a big and, He allows very real evil in our world for a season and for a purpose, all for his greater purposes. And we live in this suggested tension because here's what's true. There's no way that we can ever synthesize all of this down with some simplistic five-minute explanation so that no one's gonna so that people would actually feel good about it, right? Nothing we ever say, no matter how polished or articulate it is, is going to suddenly make people feel okay with pain and evil and suffering in their lives and the lives of other people. Absolutely. How are you ever going to feel good about the tragedy that's unfolding still in Japan? We, we can't just explain that away and go like, oh, okay, I got that in a nice little package, put a little bow on it. No. And it's not going to be okay because we as people are not okay with pain and evil and suffering in our lives or in the lives of other people for that matter. And so with that in view with this view that we're going to actually live and continue to live and just sort of make our home in the midst of this tension about these matters, there is some very logical and practical thinking so that we can engage in conversation with people around to help them see Christianity does offer a very satisfying answer to what is often referred to as the problem of evil. And you might call them uh, points of light, even, to help us navigate these issues of evil, pain, and suffering. And we call them points of light because that's exactly what they are. They help give us direction. I want you to imagine with me for a moment you're driving at night a two-lane rural highway somewhere in Montana in the month of January. You have this picture in your head? It's not that hard, right? Because like the other day, it felt like January, right? And I want you just to imagine as you're driving, the weather's been deteriorating. You've been driving on a long trip. It's been deteriorating all day. But now that it's dark, it's black, It's as if a whole other world of bad weather is rearing its very ugly head. There's blizzard conditions, both from the snow that's blowing all over across the road in front of you, the snow that's falling from the sky at a record-setting pace, big old flakes, and you all know exactly what I'm talking about. You can barely even see the fog line on the edge of the road, nor can you see the crucial lane-separating line in the middle of the road. But you don't stop, do you? And why don't you stop? Because if you stop, you're afraid that some monkey behind you is going to smash into you because they can't see either. They're just sort of feeling their way down the road. You don't stop, so you just creep along, sort of feeling your way down the road. Then a really cool thing happens, though. You're sort of 
poking along, and just ahead of you, you see these two red lights through the blizzard off the nose of your car. And you're like, whoa, those are like taillights. I've sort of crept right up on a, another vehicle here. And what do you know? There's a, there's a pickup there, and the driver is right where he should be in his lane. Could be a she, too, just so you know. No sexism here. Women are good drivers. They know where to be in the lane as well. He or she, the driver of that vehicle, are right where they're supposed to be. And so what do you do? It's this really cool thing. You just kind of tuck yourself right in behind that pickup, and you just keep your eyes right on that person's taillights, and they're just going to guide you to your intended destination. Now, Lee Strobel, a guy I have immense respect for, he says, look, it's the exact same thing when it comes to trying to understand why in the world there's evil, pain, and suffering in our world. While it's true that we might not ever be able to make out all of the peripheral details of why, those are very likely most often obscured from our view, but there are many points of light along the way that light up these very crucial biblical truths for us. The first one is this, the first point of light. The world, see, this world that we live in, it's just as Jesus predicted it would be. It's just as he predicted it would be. All of this evil, all of this pain, all of this suffering that we're in the thick of, it is no surprise to God. Look at John 16, I have told, this is Jesus talking, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me, because you're not going to get it anywhere else. Here on earth, Jesus says, you will have many trials and sorrows. It's like a promise, not the best kind of promise, is it? But it is a promise. You will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And all of the pain and all of the suffering and all the evil that we see around us every day is actually more evidence that Jesus got it right, isn't it? He doesn't sugarcoat the truth to try to make us feel all good about something. Uh Uh-uh. He tells it like it is. And then he does this amazing thing. He offers his resources. He offers his assistance to help us navigate every single bit of it. The world is just as Jesus predicted. It would be number two. You got to know that God did not create or cause evil. God did not create, nor did he cause evil. Some people, they reason that if God created everything, and since there is evil, then God, therefore, must have created evil. I don't think that's accurate. Rather, I believe the correct way to look at that is to say God didn't create evil. He did, however, create human beings who could choose whether or not to truly love God and follow him. Or we can choose not to love him and not to follow him. And that's the choice that human beings have made from Adam and Eve all the way down the human race to you and me and our friends in whom we're having, with whom we're having these sorts of conversations. And so you see, intrinsic in our ability to love is our ability not to love, right? If we didn't have the choice not to love, well, then what are we? Well, we're just robots. We're just uh, marionette dolls or puppets pre-programmed to go through the motions of what love looks like, but not really expressing the real thing. I got to tell you, I love the way my wife, Dana, loves me. It absolutely means the world to me because she didn't, nor does she have to, love me. She doesn't. There are a gazillion other men out there that she could have chosen from, that she could have married, but for some almost inexplicable reason, she chose me, and I'm just so incredibly grateful 
for that. And it works just the same with you and the people who love you and who you love, your parents and siblings and children and friends. Their love means that much more because they choose to freely express their love, even though they don't have to. They do not have to. It's this cool deal about love. You cannot force it, can you? You can't ever force love. As a matter of fact, forced love is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? It's either forced or it's love, but it can't be both because real, genuine, authentic love is always, by definition, freely chosen. It's what makes Jesus' incarnation and his death on the cross even that much more amazing. It was chosen every single step of the way. It was chosen. God wasn't shoving Jesus in the back saying, come on, son, come on, go, go, go. Jesus chose it. A guy named Norm Geisler, he says it like this. Since God is love, he cannot ever force himself on anyone against their will. Forced love is not love, Geisler says. Check this out. He says it's rape. And God, Geisler says, is not a divine rapist. Love must work persuasively, but not ever coercively. Love is persuasive, but it is not coercive in order for it to be love. So I say all that to say that while God did not create evil, he did create us, humanity, as free beings, thus creating the potential for evil. And we chose, didn't we, to actualize that potential. So did a fallen angel named Lucifer and all of his cronies. You can read about that in the Old Testament of the Bible. And evil enters the human race. God knew, this is amazing, God knew that would happen. God saw it coming. It was not a surprise to him. And yet, he still proceeded with the creation because he knew that an even greater good would come from it, including the reality that so many of his creation would turn around, would go against the prevailing grain of human rebellion and choose to love and follow and serve and give themselves fully to him. Number three, the cause behind, and this one's a little hard to swallow, the cause behind most suffering is human. The cause behind most suffering is human because you see the byproduct of a God who created us as free beings who can choose to follow or not follow him is that we live in a world where people do exactly what they want to do which means that all kinds of sin, all kinds of abuse, all kinds of damage occurs leading to untold volumes of human pain and suffering. As a matter of fact, a really common estimate that floats around is upwards of 90% of all of the suffering in the world comes through exclusively human causes. Wars, genocide, human trafficking, murders, torture, racial discrimination, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, rape, on and on and on and on and on the list goes. And God didn't want that, did he? He tells us as much all throughout his scriptures. The Ten Commandments lay it out really clearly a whole bunch of other places in the Bible too. All those verses, all that instruction designed to keep us from sin and to protect us from one another. Now there's a guy named Dinesh D'Souza. He explains in a book that he wrote a few years ago, he explains this unbelievably tragic news that in the past century, in the past hundred years or so, the most powerful atheist regimes in the world, communist Russia, communist China, Nazi Germany, have wiped out people in astronomical numbers. And when you take those big three, Stalin, the leaders of those big three, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, we recognize that atheist regimes just in the past hundred years A single century have murdered more than 100 million people. Let that hit you like a ton of bricks. 
have murdered more than 100 million people. And when you think about what we human beings do to one another, it is so incredibly tragic, isn't it? No natural disaster on record even comes close to causing that level of death and devastation. And here's what some of us do with that kind of tragedy, that kind of news. We say, well, God, you ought to just put your foot down and you ought to just stop all of that madness. Why don't you just put a stop to it? But when you think on it, upon further reflection, if God were to do that, Would you tell me, please, which freedoms should God take and which should he leave us with? Which ones? Because you see, in order to stop all of the evil in this fallen sinful world, that would entail taking away every single bit of our human freedom, our human liberty. Number four, we do live in a fallen world, don't we? A very fallen world. A byproduct of the moral evil which has affected the human race is the natural evil, scholars call it, which tragically affects the world all around us. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the results, they were cataclysmic. It wasn't just for them and their immediate offspring either, but for the whole entirety of humanity as well as the cosmos, the created order. When you read Genesis 3, you notice as a result of their sin that God curses some things, doesn't he? He curses the serpent, he curses Eve, he curses Adam, he curses the ground, he actually curses the earth itself. That causes thorns and thistles, it intensifies the labor that it takes to draw food from the earth, and those are just a few of the specifics, but when you read everything that unfolded on that incredibly incredibly tragic day, what's plainly in view is that the entirety of the relationship between God and people and people and people was wrecked, gravely impaired. As a matter of fact, things have not ever been the same since, right? And we live with that day in and day out. The Apostle Paul, he says it this way, Romans 8, starting in verse 19, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Check this out. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse against its will but with eager hope the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from this death and from this decay and until that future day which will be a glorious magnificent day won't it death and decay come to us through many 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 sources hurricanes earthquakes tsunamis tornadoes floods fires, all manner of other natural disasters, stuff in the insurance industry calls acts of God, all kinds of other unintentional accidents and events which affect people the world over quite indiscriminately, right? And here's how you see all of that. It is the natural evil that has its roots in the moral failure of humanity. But please do not ever ascribe an incident of suffering to a specific sin or action. Please do not ever do that. How many times have you heard a prominent Christian leader say, that tragedy struck because of this sin right here? And they try to blame the disaster on the activities of a particular person, a certain religion, politics of a people group or a certain region. Don't ever do that, please. It's quite embarrassing to God. Because short of an undeniable prophetic revelation from God himself, 
Those kinds of pronouncements are not ours to make. And more often than not, they only serve to discredit the person making them and serve to upset and disturb a whole bunch of people with words that probably aren't even true, causing them to even further tune out the message of Christianity. And Jesus had stuff to say about this. He corrected that sort of thinking. Well, that natural disaster happened because of this particular sin. It must have been quite prevalent in Jesus' day because look at Luke 13, 1 to 5. Jesus gets right in the middle of it. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people? He kind of keeps the story going. What about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. The bottom line, see, is that we live in a fallen world. It is not as God intended it to be. Things go wrong, both the righteous and the unrighteous. They get hurt. Things are not normal. Life is not ever fair. And yes, absolutely, God can, he thankfully does, protect his people from the evils that might have befallen them. But he doesn't make any promises that he's going to do that every single time. Which means that for reasons that only he understands, God sometimes allows bad things to happen to his much-loved people. Number five. God will finally judge evil. And lots of us are very excited and live with a whole bunch of anticipation for that day. Some people, they very hastily come to the conclusion that if God were truly good, if he were great, then he would stop all the bad things that are happening. But since he doesn't do that, at least he hasn't done that comprehensively, well then they arrive at this conclusion that he must not exist, or if he does exist, that he's not all that good or all that great. But when they do that, they're overlooking God's promise to vanquish and judge evil, right? We see it again and again and again all throughout the sacred text. He just hasn't done it yet. He just hasn't done it yet. All you got to do is read the Bible and you see justice and final days of reckoning and a day of great judgment. They're one of the most significant threads throughout the entirety of the scripture. And at the same time, The Bible reveals to us a God who is very, very, very patient. Look at what God says to Moses in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of what? Compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. David says this of God, Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God, this sounds reminiscent of the Exodus. You are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Whoa. So what's God's purpose for being slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faith? What is it? Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. The New International Version renders the word destroy, perish. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He does not want anyone to perish. That is the heart of our God. 
He doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants everyone to repent, to turn, to yield their lives to him. And so you boil all that down and you say, well, God is good. He is great. And he stands ready to judge evil when it's time. And in the interim, he's graciously waiting. And he's waiting for our friends and he's waiting for our family members. He's waiting for perhaps the people who are asking us these kinds of sticky questions that we're trying to answer through this series. He's waiting for them to turn and love him and follow him and serve him and give themselves wholly to him. Number six, it's not on your notes page, but you can write. This proves we live in a fallen world. It's not on your notes page, sorry. God suffered too, number six. God suffered too. And suffering and pain gets real lonely. Feels real lonely, doesn't it? And sometimes it feels like it's just us, all by ourselves. No one else knows, no one else hears, no one else cares. And on those days, in those moments, you can put your hope and you can put your stock in this truth, God suffered too. Especially in the person of Jesus, and he suffered in ways, I assure you, that none of us will ever suffer. Look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Though he was God, Jesus, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. And get this, we do not even have a grasp on all that that entails. That giving up of divine privilege, we, 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 our heads cannot get around that. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Untold suffering. God suffered too. He gets human suffering. When we're in the midst of pain and suffering, he fully understands what it is that we're going through. The writer of Hebrews says it this way about Jesus. Look at chapter 2 of Hebrews, starting in verse 17. Therefore, it was necessary for him, this is Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters. Why? So that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we're being tested. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then... Since we have such a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He gets it. For he faced all the same testings we do. Yet check this out. Here's the difference between him and us. Yet he did not sin. Whoa. He did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most, in the midst of our darkest hour of pain and suffering. Help, grace, when we need it most. And check this out. That same God who cursed the world, remember Genesis chapter 3, he actually curses the planet itself. That same God who cursed the world came into the world and became a curse for us. 
offering us his comfort and his help to those who just receive it, just believe it, just go, yep, I get it. And number seven, we'll finish on this one. God can bring good out of bad. God can bring good out of bad. There's really, really good news related to pain and suffering and evil. Romans 8.28 gets at it a bit. And we know that you know this verse, a whole bunch of you do. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And while that is an incredibly encouraging verse, it is also one of the most abused verses in all of Christianity. Right? It sort of becomes very often like a giant broom. I'm just going to Romans 8, 28, all of this pain and suffering right under the rug and just be done with it. Notice that text does not say that everything that ever happens is good. The Bible doesn't say that. But instead, Romans 8, 28 offers that many, many things that happen, they're very bad, but assures us that God can use them for good, or he can choose to bring good out of them. There's another thing that's intrinsic in Romans 8, 28. God does not promise there that he will always let us see the good right away. Very often, we will never see it, because God can bring about good that we don't even recognize as being good. And then, God isn't promising, and this is a biggie, and this is where Romans 8, 28 gets way overplayed, God is not promising that he'll bring good out of bad for everybody. That isn't the promise there. Only those who love God, only those who are called according to his purpose, that's people who know God, who are walking with him, who are serving him, who are bringing his kingdom right here, right now. Only them. And so... When we consider, well, what is the good that can come from the bad? I sort of made a bullet point list. Uh, There's some texts attached to some of them. You can go and check these out on your own. He can use pain to deepen our character. And he does very often, doesn't he? He uses pain to deepen our character. And that's not always pleasant. He can also use pain to reshape us as his sons and daughters more and more into his image and in his likeness. He can use pain to give us more spiritual and eternal perspective to help us see things from his vantage point rather than just ours. He can use pain to protect us from ourselves. He can use pain to grab our attention and teach us or redirect our lives, our behavior, our actions in very important ways. And he can actually use pain to lead us to himself. And as we wrap up today, I want to close on this thought. What's absolutely the most important thing to remember about pain and suffering and evil is it's the cross of Jesus Christ that ultimately gives meaning to all of our pain and suffering because what the cross communicates to us loud and clear is that we never suffer alone. We never suffer alone. Jesus himself suffers with us. Look at Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. I'm going to unpack this a little more, but before I do that, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. You can set your stuff aside and 
Just move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord. those of you who are here who live with sort of inordinate amounts of pain and suffering the lie that the devil wants you to believe is that you're all alone in the midst of that struggle and the devil he kind of works overtime doesn't he whispering that in your ear you're all by yourself in this God doesn't hear he's not with you he doesn't care you're just drifting all alone. And what the psalmist does is tell us the truth. And you know what truth does? Truth drives out lies. Because all that stuff that the devil's whispering in your ear about you being all alone and that God not hearing and God not caring, that's a lie. And it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And the psalmist says, the Lord, what? Is close to the brokenhearted. He's close. He's there. He hasn't left you. And what else does he do? He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And so if you're a person here today who's been buying the lie of the devil that you're all by yourself, that the Lord doesn't hear, that he doesn't care, that he isn't with you, that you and your pain, you're just all by yourselves, This is your day to drive that lie out with the truth. And so I just invite you to do that with the Lord, to say, Lord, forgive me for believing the lie. Drive it out, please, God. And replace it with this truth from Psalm 34. You might need to memorize this verse. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And tell him you're going to live in that truth. You're going to live in that reality. You're going to live in that belief. And you're going to walk that out. And you're done buying the lies of Satan. The Lord is close to you. He rescues you whose spirits are crushed. He's close and he's rescuing. He's close and he's rescuing. He's close and he's rescuing. And maybe you're a person who's here today and you don't yet have your own personal relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe the whole problem of evil thing, maybe it's tripped you up and hung you up and you, you said, I can't, I can't believe in a God in the face of all this evil and so. And so you've just been going through life all by yourself, all on your own and it hasn't been going great. What if this is your day? To be done with the skepticism and just say, yeah, I get it. I believe. I believe. I believe. But if this is your day to start your own relationship with Jesus Christ, if that's you today, you begin that transaction just by confessing, first of all, God, 
I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that my life, everything about me in its entirety has been going away from you. Please, God, forgive me for my sins. I want to know you, Jesus, more than I want anything else. Forgive me and change me. And if that's you today, if you're saying, forgive me, God. I want to experience the fullness of the love of God. If you're saying, I'm surrendering everything in my life to you, I'm not trusting in myself, I'm not trusting in anyone else except you, Jesus. If that's your prayer today, would you you just real boldly lift your hands and lock eyes with me today and just say, yep, that's me. That's me right here, right now, today. Yeah. Way to go. There and there. Yes. Yes. I stand with you and I say yes. And God, we admit we're going to live in this tension where we don't have it all figured out, but we're going to grab onto the truth from your word that you give us and we're going to attempt to see our way through the murky blackness that is this problem of evil pain and suffering. And while we understand that we're not going to see it all, we're not going to have all the answers, what we do have is you, God. You who says, I'm close to the brokenhearted. I rescue those whose spirits are crushed. And so we hold our lives, all of ourselves, up to you, and we say, well, that's us. Be close, please, God. Be rescuing, please, God.